This is the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Don Chair, editor of Poetry Magazine. I'm Christina Pugh, consulting editor. And I'm Lindsay Garbett, managing editor. Painter, poet, and activist Mary Oppen was born in 1908 in the kitchen of her parents' frontier home in Kalispell, Montana. Her first book, Meaning a Life, an autobiography, was published the year she turned 70. Over the last few decades, the book has at times been nearly impossible to find, but that's soon to change. Meaning a Life will soon be back in print thanks to New Directions, with previously unpublished material from the author's archive. This week, we're speaking with New Directions editor Jeffrey Yang about Mary Oppen's life and work. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. So I have a an old yellowing copy of this book that I got probably in 1978 or 9, and it was always a, sort of a talisman for me and a bit of a treasure, too. They are hard to come by, those old copies. Mm-hmm. But now, New Directions putting it back into print is very exciting. So yes. what do you think happened? Why was this book kind of lost for a while? It's been um, with Black Sparrow since it was first published. And I don't know, I think sometimes good books, just, as any book, will, will, could just disappear. <laughs> uh, how this one did, I'm, I can't really say. I, I've been wanting to reissue this for a long time, so I'm really happy that it's actually happening. <laughs> You open the essay with a really beautiful idea. You talk about the concept of an autobiographical canon. Could you explain what that idea is for our listeners and why this Mary Oppen book is is part of your autobiographical canon? Yeah, I opened the piece with this idea of books that we love, basically. And growing up, going to school, I think we've all been introduced to this idea of what is the canon, what is the Western canon. I think a lot of that has changed at least in my lifetime, of what we read and how we read that canon and what shapes it. But then I just have this idea of a whole nother kind of canon of books that is personal to each individual reader. And those are basically the only rule. is <laughs> Those are the books that we love. I mean, this kind of autobiographical canon, for whatever reason, these books we could always go back to and, and read again or To me, Mary Oppen's book fits perfectly in my autobiographical canon. A lot of our listeners and readers will know the work of George Oppen, and if they don't, they should. Mm -hmm. But a lot fewer of them are going to know about Mary Oppen. Can you tell folks how Mary Oppen found poetry and how she found George? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, so much of this book is almost like a fairy tale almost, but it's not. I mean, especially how she tells it is not in that in that way, but just the circumstances of their life. So Mary Oppen, she grew up in this small town in Kalispell, a frontier town in Montana, and was an avid reader. And then when she was 11, I think it was around then, she moved to, their family moved to Grants Pass, Oregon. So she found books early on, and this again is all, she writes about this in her book. And then it was in college, in a poetry class, that she met George Oppen. And it was, I mean, the way she described it in an interview uh, much later, one of the only interviews she gave on her own, oftentimes, they, whenever they did give interviews, or George Oppen would give an interview, oftentimes it was both of them together. But she describes it as a miracle. I mean, and that's how they kind of thought of, and George Oppen writes about it, too, as this meeting meeting her and her meeting him as as this miracle when they were 18. 
I don't know, for most of us meeting someone, <laughs> dating someone when we're 18, it's, it's something totally different. But for them, they knew early on exactly, I mean, they didn't know what, of course, was going to happen, but they knew they wanted to be together. And so Mary Oppen got kicked out of the college uh, for breaking curfew, and they just left. And from then on, it was kind of this adventure that they had uh, together with their life. So that kind of answers like the, the poetry side. I mean, she she st- she started writing poetry early on, just like George Oppen did as well. She was also painting and drawing, and, and I think the painting and drawing kind of she she kept going with throughout her life. And it was only much later on, through actually translation, that she came back to writing again. One of the sort of remarkable things about their life together, including all the places they went that they also made a sort of huge decision to stop writing almost, you know, very early on. And could you tell us a little bit about why they made that decision and what they were doing instead? So at one point, they went to France together early on in their 20s. And they met Ezra Pound. And Pound introduced them or gave them introductions to other writers and artists there. And they decided to start this press called Two Publishers, and it brought out a book by Pound and Williams, and I'm, I'm forgetting exactly. I think there was just a few titles there. So early on, they were very active or wanting to be part of that environment, and Zukovsky was part of it. And then um, that didn't last, and then they were in New York, and they were part of this collective of objectivists. The thing that really affected them being back in New York, too, was what was going on through the Great Depression and people out of work. I mean, the way to describe it, just unemployed everywhere. And it was really, what were they going to do about this situation? I mean, it seemed that for them, they could just couldn't continue on with their own writing practice, artistic practice at, at that point. They knew that they weren't going to give it up forever, but they knew at that point that they wanted to do something else. And so they joined the Communist Party, and they started to work and organize for the unemployed, the Workers' Alliance. They worked for a union in Utica in New York. And so they just became very active in the party. And at that point, they pretty much cut off contact with all of the kind of artistic circle that they knew of, leaving it, they kind of left it up to those people to to contact them if they wanted to, because basically they knew they could get people in trouble by by their activism, uh, through their activism. And so so they were just focused on that. And they didn't find a kind of aesthetic outlet possible, I think, at that point. you know. And so they, they were just doing this other work. It's an interesting kind of silence that they uh, worked together in and for a long time. And Mary Oppen chooses to return to writing during the period of second wave feminism in the 70s. And as you point out in the piece in the magazine, she benefited from quite a field of 20th century women autobiographers like Jane Addams, Ida B. Wells, Emma Goldman, Edith Wharton, Gertrude Stein, Zora Neale Hurston, and I mean, just countless others. And This kind of moment for the autobiographical act is really interesting, especially with regard to the fact that I think 
as we mentioned before, Mary Oppen's book kind of appears in the the midst of this surging of interest, which has continued to this day, and yet her book kind of falls away. So what do you think has changed between the 70s and now that makes it the right time for this book to reappear? It's funny, you know, with the whole Me Too movement and what's going on with the ongoing women's movement now, I mean, it is amazing to think that this book will be back in print during this time. It was a complete accident and coincidence that it is being published now. I mean, it was, it's just, I mentioned before, I've been wanting to reissue this book for a long time and it was just, it was kind of like a rights issue for a while and then kind of juggling the lists at New Directions and trying to pinpoint a time and with everything that's going on. I think Mary Oppen has, I think we can learn a lot from from her experiences and what uh, how she how she writes about them honestly and you could always sense that she's never trying to embellish anything and at the same time it is very moving uh, especially you know she and, and what she chooses to write about you know she talks about stillbirths that she experienced in in this one section and even what she chose to write about will have a uh, a lot of people will find kind of interesting and I don't know. I think it'll. it'll I, I'm. I'm actually very curious to see if people find this book now, because of course now too, there's a lot more books being published, and a lot of a whole range of different kinds of autobiography and kind of mixed genre things as well. But I still think a lot of what Mary Oppen is writing about and how she writes about it is very pertinent to writers now and artists. Yeah. Yeah, I think another one of the interesting things that Mary Oppen's life and the way she goes about her her art and her writing is sort of her relationship to fame, which you write about a little bit in the piece. She published very late in life, as we've talked about, and never had, you know, any sort of solo gallery show or anything like that, which might lead us to think that her ambitions were thwarted, but you suggest that that would be a false interpretation. What do you think Mary Oppen's relationship was to fame and, and why should we think about it differently than maybe we do today in the age of social media and all, all kinds of celebrity fame? I've talked to her daughter or their daughter, Linda, a little bit about this as well, who did mention to me that she, she was a part of some kind of group show at the Smithsonian or, mm-hmm. or something like that. So it's not as if she was doing all this completely excluded you know, exclusively from outside of any kind of, you know, thought of showing it or or sharing it. But at the same time, I think she was a very serious artist and a very serious writer. And I think she was also very encouraging to George Oppen as well, her husband. I think she, I mean, as Linda described it, she was always the one who was holding things together for them because they moved around so much. And then they had a daughter and then George Oppen was a soldier, you know, and so... So she was doing a lot of different things, but fame never really sat well with her. You know, she writes about that specifically, that it is very uh, unsettling for her and that she she finds it as something that as, as a kind of loss of self and not wanting to pursue that, you know, whatever that means. You know, it's so hard to kind of think about that, that now, as you mentioned. So does she have regrets? I mean, I don't know, but I, I would, to me, like, no, I, I would say that she would, she, she lived her life exactly how they wanted to do it together. And yeah, and she, mm-hmm. 
she says this in interviews and she she even you know she writes about this that she the choice that she made i mean i mean i could even read this it's it's a romantic vision and that is what my life is it is not only the vision but it is what i've made i would defend it do it again and she's talking about her life and then she goes on to say the public fame for me would have been hell yeah, it's funny because then she could have ended it there. But she says, one person's heaven may be another person's hell. I choose my own way again, and it is heaven. And so that pretty explicitly says that how she felt about that. And I think, you know, they were trying, again, they, they were always seeking this clarity of thought and action and, and living, you know, and, and how that relates to words and art and life and being sincere with what they wanted to, to do with that, you know. I love reading this book. I reread this book. It's it's an unusual book, isn't it? It's sort of dramatic and reticent at the same time. And by the time you read it, it's it's not an enormous book. You no, know, it's got yeah. that sort of objectivist concision yeah. going for it. But I think when you step away from the book, it's amazing that she lived this incredible span of years. I mean, from 1908 in Montana, the season's passing, as you say, with the day's milk delivered by horse and wagon, all yeah. the way up to her death in 1990 in California. And I wonder, you know, sort of that the end of her life, I think, is contemporary still for uh, uh, quite a few of us. But in the end, what kind of document do you think this book is? I mean, we sort of call it a life or an autobiography, but it's very different from that because it doesn't really reveal an awful lot of, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of not like on this day I did this and it doesn't, you know, it's sort of right. very, yeah. very spare, which puts it at odds with the kinds of autobiographical or life writing we're used to now. And yet I think that maybe that's sort of one of the great characteristics of it as an artifact of its time. I mean, do you, when you step back from this book, where do, what do you think its place is? Is it kind of a, is it a classic or a, a minor classic? I mean, where does it fit in with all these other kinds of, poets and autobiographical writers and women writers and, you know, the Me Too moment. When we step back from the book, now that it's available again, how should we look at this book? I wish I had a succinct answer for that, Don. (laughs) You know, because it's something that I've thought a lot about, too, especially because, you know, I was in the archive and I was looking for this other material to add to it. I knew that she had written these other pieces and so trying to contextualize a lot about that. I mean, I actually don't read a whole lot of autobiography. I love a good autobiography. I mean, I even translated one, this Poet Beidou's book, but that's also not your usual autobiography. I mean, for me, I, I see it as a classic of American autobiography. What does that mean? I mean, I'm not sure what that means because there has been so many you know, autobiographies written, but the way her approach and how she uses poetic strategies and concision of very lyrical uh, writing. Again, coming out of this objectivist group of writers uh, that were connected, taking very concise approach to language, very, you know, extending the image and, and things, and but also writing about what they were doing and what they chose to do, but also what she was feeling and thinking at these times. Again, without getting too, without getting sentimental, and getting too far into that, I think she, she didn't want to do that. It seems like, 
the story, I don't know, it's just this incredible story of two people who found themselves, each other, found each other early on and knew that they wanted to be together. And, and so what, what does that look like for this time span of the 20th century? You know, we have, we have a book like Kerouac's On the Road, but this is a whole different kind of being on the road, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so it's also such an American kind of story as well. So I don't know, we'll see. I guess we'll see what happens. But I mean, I, I don't know. The readers who I have met who have found this book, it's it's always a book that has kind of made a impact. But maybe I should ask you that same question. <laughs> Where is this? <laughs> well, we'll see. Like I say, you know, this my old copy of this book was something I sort of carefully guarded and wanted to make sure I never lost track of it. But now to sort of uh, paraphrase Pound Badly, it's, it's going to have a wide circulation thanks <laughs> yeah. to your work and New Directions. So we'll... We'll see what people think, but it's a wonderful book to read. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for talking to us about, about Mary Oppen and George and this wonderful book. Jeffrey Yang is the author of the poetry books Hey Marfa, Vanishing Line, and An Aquarium, all from Grey Wolf Press. You can read Mary Oppen, Meaning a Life, an introduction to Oppen's 1978 autobiography, as well as view a series of Oppen's paintings from the 1930s to the 1980s in the February 2020 issue of Poetry Magazine or online at poetrymagazine.org. If you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, and you really should be one, for a limited time, we're offering podcast listeners a special rate of $20. That's $20 for a full year of the freshest voices in contemporary poetry featured in 11 book-length issues, as well as free digital access on our mobile app. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. We'll have another episode for you next week, or you can get all February episodes all at once in the full-length podcast on SoundCloud. Let us know what you thought of this program. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or if you listen another way, email us at podcast at poetryfoundation.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts. The Poetry Magazine podcast is recorded by Ed Herman and produced by Rachel James. The theme music comes from the Claudia Quintet. I'm Lindsay Garbett. I'm Christina Pugh. And I'm Don Cher. Thanks for listening.